Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yamolenko. I am editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. Today we will try to talk about what makes Ukraine interesting to the world, what global processes and trends have an important angle in Ukraine, and why Ukrainian case can be essential to understand some other parts of the world as well. So my guest today is Ukrainian public intellectual Ivan Hlibovitsky, one of the most well-known and prominent Ukrainian and current thinkers and public intellectuals. So, Ivan, thank you so much for being here. It's uh, good to feel that we can speak in bad English to our audience that uh, understand what good English is. I think the bad English is one of the most uh, widespread languages in the world. Maybe It's probably the future <laughs> language that will take over the rest of the languages. Right. So, let's talk about Ukraine because we are in Ukraine. We are, we are living here. And uh, my question is very simple. Why Ukraine can be interesting for the world? Well, I think because Ukraine is important. It's inherently important. And uh, the importance of Ukraine probably cannot be seen on the surface. You kind of have to dwell into it. You have, you have to understand it to realize that uh, a lot of questions, for instance, what will come of the new arising standoff between the Western world and China? You know, the response to that question is partially now being forged in Ukraine. Ukraine is a country on the fault lines, and uh, that makes Ukraine incredibly interesting to follow. This is a country of clashing values. This is a country of um, arrival of a new agency. Ukrainian nation comes to the scene where we had only colonial Uh, players in previous acts, uh, historical acts, if, if we can say so. Uh, so basically, we see the shift of political orientations. Ukraine is currently the country that hosts the Berlin Wall that left Berlin in 1989 and that currently is separating Ukraine from the occupied parts of the country. So Ukraine is a kind of a borderland. We talked about it with historians, for example, with Serhii Plokhin. It's one of the, his theses that Ukraine it was historically a borderland between different between different entities, between settled culture and the nomadic culture, between different forms of Christianity. So Ukraine continues to be a borderland. It's not only continues to be the borderland. It's actually, I think, it's the essence of the borderland. Uh, in, in that sense, Ukraine is the country where you see the mixes of uh, things that are unseen anywhere else. I'm not saying that this is the only place between East and West or North and South, you know, whatever, you know, you can say about that. You know, there are many places in this world that claim that they are the meeting point. I think um, all of them have uh, some legitimacy to these claims. I think Ukraine is offering uh, an absolutely unique perspective because it's very intense. It is a place uh, where you have many criteria meeting each other. You know, if you look through religion, you see one perspective. If you look through economy, you see the other perspective. Uh, nation building, nationhood, yet another perspective. Uh, languages, culture, you know, uh, another perspective. Military, security, another perspective. So But Ukraine all is... of these, all of these perspectives 
perspectives basically puts Ukraine uh, in a position where it is the place on the fault lines. Fault lines, what do you mean? The heterogeneity? It's usually the moving border between something that used to be and something that is arriving. Uh, that border is not always clear. It's not always geographical. Very often it's generational. Very often it goes through people. It is inside the people. And that basically um, allows you to constantly see the arrival, the birth of new entities, the birth of new agency, the birth of very young new identity. Uh, and I think it's incredibly exciting. It's from intellectual perspective, from pretty much any perspective, it's exciting. That puts us in a position where our literature is interesting because this is a literature that is rich, our music is interesting, our um, art is interesting. As a result, Ukraine is a powerful producer of senses that are catching the audience both inside Ukraine and outside Ukraine. If I tell you that one of the advantages of Ukraine, one of the senses, is the, is an idea that uh, tradition doesn't contradict modernity, that you can move forward to the future, but at the same time keep a good relations with the past, something that is not really clear in other parts of the world, because we see increasing tensions between tradition and modernity elsewhere. Well, in that sense, Ukraine is actually a unique place because tradition is used as a vehicle by modernity in Ukraine. It is tradition that brings modernity to a Ukrainian on the street. You know, it is the church, for instance, that sponsors good research facilities, good universities with evidence-based approach, for instance. But church, you mean Greek Catholic church, not other churches? Well, that's the point. Um, if we ask what's happening here at the moment, then yes, in view we have an outstanding Ukrainian Catholic university. But if you look historically, Kiev Mohela Academy was born in in exactly the same way. It was started by a metropolitan of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Who uh, set up a school in Latin. Who set incredible. up a school in Latin, yes. It was uh, incredible by the time. You have East meeting the West. And that was another story like this. And if you follow through other denominations, uh, through Protestants, through Ukrainian modern Orthodox uh, Church, if you look through other religious groups in Ukraine, you see similar tendencies. They may not be institutionalized in the same way, but this is amazing. It's the same thing with regards to, for instance, business culture. Those were often Ukrainian nationalists who were introducing the concepts of market economy in the 90s. You know, people of extremely traditional political views or extremely traditional cultural views were the people that were actually helping to break through from the Soviet uh, administrative economy into the economy of free market and uh, free entrepreneurship. That was a kind of a very interesting consensus between nationalism and liberalism, right? Which was very, you know, crucial for Ukraine's independence efforts. But then I think it still exists today. And one of the mistakes made by external observers is just to follow, you, you know, Ukrainian far right or whatever. Far right is an important problem, obviously, but the much more interesting synthesis is this fusion between liberals and the nationalists or patriots? Well, people who put far right uh, in a mainstream uh, Ukrainian agenda are people who hardly understand what's happening in Ukraine or with Ukraine. The far right, just as the far left, exists in Ukraine. It's part of the legacy, historical and political legacy of Ukraine, but it's not anything that uh, is defining Ukraine at the moment. It's exactly the mixtures that are defined 
intertwining. You were talking about liberalism and conservatism being in the same package, and that's exactly what Ukraine is um, uh, telling the world. Look, traditional debates that we have all over the world between the conservative platform and liberal platform can actually be uh, conducted in a completely different way. They do not necessarily have to contradict each other. They can actually be brought to a certain consensus, and Ukraine is the place where this consensus is possible. And it's possible because one of the things that you see in Ukraine is that the security threat is so there, is so big, is so serious, that you have to put aside the irrelevant discussions. And when you look at the uh, issues through Ukrainian optics, you very often see that you can actually find compromises that are much closer than uh, we would think, for instance, being in the United States or somewhere in the EU. That means that security threats are good. Because they can mobilize the nation, they can mobilize the community, and basically uh, become a impetus for development. That's a paradox. Security threats are good because they motivate, but then if they uh, become chronic, they debilitate. So in that sense, security threats can help the awakening, but if they're not resolved over a longer period of time, they they lead to decay, and uh, this is inevitable. So I, I would say that the biggest issue about uh, Ukraine and the, probably the biggest challenge about Ukraine is how Ukraine can respond to its security threats. And they're not only external, they're also internal. And uh, this is something that uh, Ukraine would have to deal with. Um, probably if Ukraine could come up with a collective solution for the external threats, and pretty much every country in the world right now is using one or the other way of uh, collective security concept, then Ukraine could probably deal with its uh, internal issues with uh, the signals that we see, the early signals that we see from the Biden administration doesn't look like there is particular excitement in the White House uh, with regard to membership action plan with NATO. So NATO perspective probably is a postponed perspective for Ukraine, and that can cost dearly. Yeah, because the Russian narratives that uh, if Ukraine enters NATO will attack Ukraine is basically a intimidation because what we see empirically is that when the country lacks, uh, lacks this perspective, like Georgia on Ukraine, that is... Well, that is motivation you know, for Russia to attack. Russia right? has attacked Ukraine, you know, without being part of NATO. You know, Crimea is occupied by Russia. There is no discussion about that. It takes a lot of intellectual courage, let's, let me put it this way, uh, with certain irony to question whether Russians are present in Donbass. And, you know, you have to execute certain level of not to see the Russian post there. But as we speak about this, it's not only Ukraine security. It's also uh, much greater issues are on the agenda. Uh, the question is, um, will Russia be able to be a sustainable player in 21st century? And with policies like this, uh, that basically means that Russia is exhausting itself. What happens when Russia becomes an exhausted uh, country? What happens when Russia is a country stricken by internal Uh, crises, and uh, these crises uh, would start uh, tearing the uh, political spectrum of Russia apart. Will Russia inevitably become the junior partner for China? Will Russia become the country that will not be able to, to stay together? Will Russia 
have a chance for renewal? These are good questions that we should be asking. These are good questions showing that Ukrainian situation is really global because it's much more about uh, this part of the world but uh, much wider. Let's come back to this, you know, idea of change because it's very interesting how Ukraine is changing. I have an impression that we had one pattern of change right after Euromaidan in 2014-15. Now we have another pattern of change, maybe a kind of much more evolutionary. How do you perceive it? I think we were in rescue mode for the most part of 2014-15-16. And eventually this rescue mode has worn itself off. And uh, after that, it's important to understand that Ukraine is a sophisticated country. It's a country that in many cases you can't generalize into one uh, particular trend. You have different groups in the society that want different ways. Reforms that have been undertaken uh, right after Euromaidan made a lot of people feel quite uncomfortable or even scared. One of the things that these reforms did, they forced a lot of people from certain Soviet certainty into the uncertainty of the modern world. And as a result of this uh, uncertainty, a lot of people felt that they are not as comfortable as they used to be. And that's pretty much the same all over the world. You have similar um, sentiment feeding Trumpism in the United States, feeding uh, Boris Johnson in UK, feeding the ruling coalitions or regimes in Poland, uh, Hungary, uh, Turkey, etc. What happened in Ukraine was that um, this sentiment with the fear of losing the sense of what's happening forced a lot of Ukrainians to reverse the course abruptly. And And at, on one hand, a lot of Ukrainians said, okay, we're not happy with five years of Poroshenko. We would like to change the course. But then there is no consensus as to how do we change the course. And the security layout allows only very narrow corridor for any change. Because in fact, regardless whether you believe that or not, whether you accept reality or not, Crimea is occupied There are Russian tanks in Donbass. You know, Ukrainian servicemen die every week on the front line. And this reality is knocking, you know, sometimes pounding on the door, as well as uh, the fact that a lot of reforms have arrived not because there was uh, some reformist force that uh, supported them, but because they were uh, simply a response to extreme necessity. The old Soviet system that uh, Ukrainians kept on using uh, from 1991 until very recently has basically lost all of its um, ability. And Ukrainians had to start transforming the very foundation of their institutions. And it's difficult um, because you, you don't have a simple, it's not a simple uh, transformation. Look, in Germany, when Germany reunited, it was very clear for Eastern Germans that they will be living in the frame framework of Western Germany. In Central Europe, the Visegrad countries, when they were transforming in the 80s, uh, there was a sense of return to normalcy for them. They realized uh, their societies knew that they are going back to the path that they uh, have been forced to abandon after the Second World War. Uh, they are restoring property rights, they're restoring political freedoms, they're restoring personal freedoms, and uh, they're restoring their European discourse. Whereas for Ukraine in 1991, there was certainty about the past, and that was not necessarily the certainty that people liked. 
with repressions, with uh, abuses, with economic hardships, but there was no certainty about the future. There but, is no model into which we are arriving. But right now, nobody in the world has a certainty about the future. And maybe we had this uh, uncertainty about the future earlier than others. Does it, does it give Ukrainian experience certain advantage? This uncertainty in Ukraine was much greater than the uncertainty that we're talking about in the Western world right now. The uncertainty of the Western world had boundaries. For instance, rule of law or free market economy or the idea of ever better security. Uh, whereas um, Ukrainians in 1991 had no idea what's awaiting them. There were tremendous expectations of prosperity and peace. Then they didn't play out. And then there was a question why that never happened. And Anders Aslund said in the 90s that Ukraine is too educated to be poor and too poor to be educated. One or the other has to give in. Now in 2021, we see that poverty has lost to education. Partly, I would say partly, because we're judging from Kiev, you know, and uh, the rest of the country is not, you know, that optimistic. Uh, well, I would side with Melinda Haring here, who says that bad news come from Kiev, good news come from elsewhere in Ukraine. I would actually say that uh, Kiev is probably the better off place. But it's not the only place in Ukraine where institutions are born. Actually, what we see is that the key transformation in Ukraine is institutional. And uh, uh, what Ukrainians are now currently trying to find is how they have to build their institutions. Now, there are no blueprints and the European blueprints have not worked in the way that uh, everyone expected. If you go through the history of reforms in Ukraine, in the 90s we were trying to apply the Western blueprints directly, and most of the institutions that were created this way failed miserably. In the Nullies, we did a second attempt, and the result was very similar. But there are exceptions. National Bank? There, there were exceptions. There were exceptions, but uh, these exceptions were usually very personified, and uh, these exceptions were not scalable. We couldn't scale them. We couldn't take these exceptions and say, okay, oh, now we know what we have to do. So you are saying that currently Ukrainians should be creative as to build uh, new institutions which would not necessarily copy the Western ones because uh, copy-paste approach doesn't work? It doesn't work. But I suppose that should, I mean, observe some basic values, right? Yeah, we're not talking about values, we're talking about models probably in this case. And the third approach, the third wave of reforms was uh, after 2014. And most of these reforms that worked in Ukraine were actually designed in Ukraine and then implemented with the great assistance of uh, the Western partners. Some of these institutions went on and they thrive. Some of these institutions uh, are struggling. Some of these institutions turned out to be too sophisticated or too complex uh, for either public support or effective implementation. Uh, for instance, if you look at the law enforcement or anti-corruption institutions, it often takes an expert to explain what one or the other particular institution does and why it's necessary. And then if you can't launch them all together, then the whole system doesn't work. In many cases, we've um, taken the solutions that were too sophisticated for the environment 
in which we were having, you know, this attempt. I think it's important to analyze and see why why certain reforms worked and why certain reforms didn't work. There were darlings of the reforms, like, for instance, the Ukrainian Cultural Foundation, that have given uh, fantastic results, but then turned out not to be uh, sustainable enough because the governance model required uh, the competences that were not uh, available to the stakeholders. And as a result, at a certain point, the governance was intoxicated and then we lose the sustainability of the institutions. Five years ago, I became a supervisory board member of the public service broadcast. And uh, uh, I research culture. And uh, because I research culture for living, I knew how difficult or immensely difficult it's going to be to transform the Soviet culture in the state television and radio into public service broadcast. And at that point, I believed that it would probably be much easier to start these institutions from scratch than transform the existing ones into new ones. Five years on, I can say that probably I was wrong back then. There are certain levels of sophistications that we would probably not be able to recreate uh, should we have started the uh, transformation from scratch. So in some cases, uh, it's worth actually taking an effort and rebuilding the old institutions that are part of the Soviet legacy. But that's what well, very important what you're saying, because uh, I, one of the consensus that I have, uh, I see among people, very progressive thinking, maybe those who tried to do the reforms and pushed off the public administration, who, who are basically saying that you need to create everything from scratch and it's impossible to reform. So the, the, the very word reform is problematic. We were talking about universities, for example. Uh, the newly created universities are much more efficient, much more, much better than the old universities. We're talking about law enforcement, etc. You are saying that this is not true, that we can actually reform, but it takes uh, m- probably much bigger time and huge amount of, you know, transitional disappointments, because I remember those huge waves of disappointments about Suspilne, etc. And it, it seems that finally it started giving results right now. Well, uh, you see, I would say that part of the problem is the transactional thinking that we often have. Many stakeholders... Um, me included, in many cases are limited with certain um, planning horizons, say one year, three years, five years, a political cycle. When you look through the uh, optics of limited planning horizon, you often are not able to see the uh, long-term result uh, of of the um, action that was applied. Um, I think it's important that we are able to understand that um, probably if you create an institution from scratch, it will look much better in the beginning because it will have probably a very steep development curve. But, But then it if will you... not enter the system. That's the problem. Yeah, well, new organ is implemented into the old system. Finally, the old system says no. Well, you see, the problem is, it's a good question, what's going to happen with sustainability of these institutions, say, 20 or 30 years on? In many cases, for instance, with regards to universities, it is worth uh, trying to reform the universities. Some of the new institutions have 
have actually significant difficulties right now. Look at the Kiev Mohila Academy, you know, which is in deep crisis. On the other hand, it's a good question uh, whether uh, the state universities uh, will now, uh, with the new rules implemented on the university market, for instance, will be developing at a better pace. Some of the results of the elections that we see in state universities are promising. Uh, they some will, other are awful, so, because are, I will not record the some cases, but among the leading universities, we see democracies, democratic elections, but they're basically brought very post-Soviet people which, back to the hierarchy. Which, in my case, is something that uh, should be expected. In my thinking, it's something that should be expected, but I think the key question is, do we have uh, scalable exceptions? Do we have uh, those that are uh, giving example and that can lead by example? And that we could, uh, in many cases, take their solutions and implement them elsewhere. Will you agree with me if I say that the concept of a reform, reforming the country that we had in 2014 was erroneous because we were thinking that, look, we will change something on the top. We will change the legislation. And I remember every thinking was about legislation. Let's adopt good laws. But then you see that these good laws are not working. And right now we're thinking rather in terms of creating institutions, flagship institutions who would lead by example. Mm -hmm. Do, do you agree with me? Well, uh, look, the thinking of changing the laws is the thinking of the 90s. That we should, uh, for instance, uh, take German laws, implement them in Ukraine. We're going to have the prosperity of Germany. Didn't work somehow. Institutions are also not responsible for everything. Institutions are only part of the equation. The key issue is, if you want the change to be sustainable and if you want the change to arrive, the key issue is culture. Do we transform as people? Do we transform in uh, our understanding what is good, what is bad? Do we transform in uh, the quality of our judgment? Do we transform in our maturity of the decisions that we are taking? And uh, this is extremely important because if we are going to have immature citizens with perfectly functioning institutions, we're going to end up in a terrible, terrible uh, autocracy. So this is another, uh, I think it's another way to maturity, you know, that you, first we're thinking in terms of legislation, in terms of state, then we think in terms of institutions, procedures. And I remember this kind of naivete among Ukrainians who are thinking, okay, let's adopt Western procedures and everything will be fine. And now we end up with the people. The, the key thing is people, their interaction models, their thinking models, action models, etc. And also the quality of the environment, which matters. You can have the same people with incredible intentions, good skills, fine philosophy, failing because uh, they are put in front of the challenges that forces them to act in a very different way. Ukraine is a good example of what happens to a good society if you suck the security out of the system. If people are extremely scared or if they are extremely traumatized or if they are fearful of return of bad experience that they used to have. Uh, so in that sense, I think it's not only the institutions, it's not only the laws, it's not only the culture, it's not only the environment, it's everything together. And uh, uh, one of the difficulties that we have is that we have to actually come to this systemic, sophisticated result. And it's very difficult to do in a modern, fragmented world. Yaroslav Hrycak, the historian, uh, he's uh, ironically saying that while Ukraine globalizes, the world Ukrainianizes. And uh, the challenges that were unheard of 10 years ago are now knocking at the door. 
And uh, uh, a lot of people in the modern world, in the modern rich world, are losing sense of security, are losing sense of belonging, are becoming extremely stressed uh, about what's awaiting them. These uh, vulnerabilities uh, force them to uh, take decisions that they would have otherwise taken. Social networks have disrupted the ways we consume information. As a result, people are making their judgments now based on the information that they wouldn't base their judgments on uh, 10 years ago. We have the arrival of machines that basically influence how we think or what we do. For instance, for some reason, this is a very Ukrainian example, Apple Music, for some reason, offers Ukrainian listeners a lot of Russian music in the original playlists. Then it takes a lot of effort for a lot of Ukrainians to actually take that Russian music out of these playlists and uh, substitute it with Ukrainian or Western music. Well, a lot of Ukrainians don't take that effort. As a result, machine that was pre-programmed to think that Ukrainians like Russian music actually later confirms its own programmed bias that Ukrainians are listening to Russian music. You know, um, who do you argue with in this case? You know, you have uh, artificial intellect on the other side. And these are some of the cases when we see that decisions that are impacting culture, decisions that are impacting the political landscape, are no longer even, in many cases, taken by the living humans. They're taken by machines in some cases. If we compare Ukraine with its neighbors, I mean, we often compare with Russia, but let's compare also with Central Europe, like with uh, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, maybe, maybe Turkey, southern, you know, neighbor. What makes Ukraine different? Or what makes Ukraine similar to these countries? It's very much uh, dependent on the optics that we use. The convenient optics that allows you to see the broad discourse is religious optics, because religion brings certain ethical parameters and cultural parameters that are defining not uh, only the religious groups, but also the society that they live in. So people who are not particularly active, for instance, in uh, religious groups or or that do not practice any religious life may actually adhere to the same principles that are accepted by the society. And in that sense, Ukraine is um, an orthodox country. But then the question is, what does it mean? Ukraine also has some uh, influx of uh, Western Catholicism. But then the question is, what does it mean? Ukraine right now is probably the most actively developing Protestant culture in uh, at least in Europe. And then the question is, what does it mean? Because what we see is that we see that the religious concepts that, for instance, in Catholic discourse, it's called the social doctrine. And the names can be different in other denominations, but basically things that define how we judge ourselves in terms of our actions, what is good, what is bad. Do we think democracy is good? Do we think that entrepreneurship is good? Do we think that working hard is good, etc.? These things are only to be defined in some nearest future. Ukraine cannot continue with uh, the post-colonial and post-Soviet orthodoxy that was uh, heavily amended by the Soviet state and that was before that amended by the Russian Empire. Ukraine can't continue with the solutions that are brought from the West because Ukraine clearly had a different path, different historical path. Some of the traditional uh, approaches that have been used 
used, for instance, in Catholic Church, like the celibate, for instance, look bizarre from the Ukrainian perspective. You know, why do you have to do this? Some of the ideas about what personal freedom is, what people, how people should treat each other are very different here. So I would say that Ukraine is probably a country where the very foundations right now are in motion. And whereas they're solid, rock solid in uh, somewhere in the European countries or in North America, or relatively solid, if we can say that and put it this way. In Ukraine, it's probably melted lava. It's still uh, uh, moving. It's still uh, boiling and it's still hot in many cases. So Ukraine is looking for its new sense. And in that sense, Ukraine is very different from Poland, for instance, where a lot of things are carved in stone, you know. If you look at the Polish identity, Polish perception of statehood, Polish perception of its own history, it's very vividly traditional. And this is not the case with Ukraine, where Ukraine is discovering its own history. It's in unique situation where memories in many cases are blank and are only arriving now. When you look at other countries, uh, for instance, in former Soviet Union, one of the things that you will see is that most of these countries have clearly belonged to one discourse for a very long time. For instance, Belarus has almost throughout its entire history, with very small exception in 20th century, belonged to the same state. So when you saw the protests that broke out in Belarus. They started all over the country and they, at certain point, stopped all over the country. Whereas in Ukraine, you have the legacy of the Austrian, Austro-Hungarian Empire, you have the legacy of Russian Empire, you have the legacy of Ottoman Empire, you have the legacy of traditional Eastern Orthodoxy, you have the legacy of Roman Catholicism and Eastern Catholicism, Protestantism, Islam, Judaic, history abate being destroyed in the Second World War for the more part. And uh, as a result of this, you have this very untypical for European uh, discourse melting pot within one country. And uh, in this sense, Ukraine is very North American. It's uh, in a sense, I would say Ukraine probably represents the American social discourse more than it represents uh, the traditional Central or Southern or Western European or Northern European social discourse. It's interesting to see, for instance, where Ukrainians move when they move abroad permanently. People in cases like that tend to go to countries that are intuitively understandable to them, where they can comprehend how institutions work and how people work. And uh, in case of Ukraine, it's the Mediterranean belt. Ukrainians tend to go to the Mediterranean. If you look at the case of Belarus, that would be the Scandinavian countries, the Nordic countries. Here you have the difference between Ukraine and Belarus very vividly. Quality of institutions, sophistication of institutions. I've uh, stayed some time uh, working in Central Asia and uh, in most cases Ukraine is being compared to more developed Western countries. I have, uh, in my optics, also ability to compare Ukraine to, for instance, Central Asian countries that have a different historical path and uh, that uh, treat their Soviet experience in a different way because Soviet experience for Central Asian countries, in many senses, was also a very important modernizational experience. And uh, the access to modernization that these countries had through Soviet experience is very different than uh, in Ukraine. As a result... I can see that the institutions that we 
in Ukraine think that are outdated and bad because they are Soviet. In uh, Central Asian countries, they are the institutions that you would probably strengthen because they are the only type of institutions available. And I would say that Ukraine is probably the uh, country that allows you to exercise the elasticity of your thinking, the elasticity of your brain. It's the country that asks difficult questions that not always even have an answer. Thank you very much. Uh, the elasticity of thinking, Ukraine is a symbol of elasticity of thinking. That's a Very good metaphor. Thank you so much, Yevhen. We had Yevhen Hlebovitsky, one of the most prominent Ukrainian current and very elastic intellectuals. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. Subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Google Podcast, or Apple. Follow us on social networks, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and stay with us. Stay with us.